Hello, and welcome back to the Court Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McInnes, and I'm shaking my head because today, for the second week in a row, I'm exceedingly lucky to bring on a coach from the recently completed NBA Finals. Last week, it was A.C. Carter of the Miami Heat, and this week, it's none other than Phil Handy of the NBA champion Los Angeles Lakers, the player development guru who's become a household name around the league for his magic touch with some of the best in the game, and especially for his staying power in reaching six straight NBA Finals, winning three of them with three different franchises. And, oh yeah, this one came in the strangest of settings, the Orlando bubble. Before all of that, the brash Oakland native and junior college product was a strong contributor on Hawaii's first conference championship team, the fourth-seeded 1994 squad with firepower but a short bench that rolled into Salt Lake City and won three times in three days for the WAC title, including an upset of the de facto home team, BYU, in the championship. Hear about Handy's interesting journey, from why he actually decided to come to Hawaii, to how he built his player development brand 94 feet a game, his relationship with LeBron James, and what could be in store for Handy given his success of late. A couple of quick corrections for this pod in post-production. You'll hear me refer to Hawaii's senior night ahead of the 1994 WAC tournament as Phil's senior night. I spaced on that. He was actually a senior the following year. And the Utah Jazz's arena that UH won that 94 WAC championship in was then the Delta Center, and now called the Vivint Smart Home Arena. I had mistakenly called it one of its previous names. But, alright, let's get on with it. Here we go. Exciting news. The Court Sense Podcast has a sponsor. Amazing. Check out Mike and Kara at Nokaoi Automotive in Kalihi for all your vehicle repairs and maintenance needs. Quick turnaround, affordable, honest, and ASE certified. Call or text 842-6453 to schedule an appointment today. That's 842-MIKE or email nokaoiauto at gmail.com. The best part? Mention the Court Sense Podcast for a 10% discount. All right, it's a truly special time on the Court Sense podcast to uh, be able to welcome on a reigning NBA champion, two-time in a row NBA champion, three-time winner overall in former Hawaii basketball standout, Phil Handy of the Los Angeles Lakers. Phil, welcome to the pod, man. Me, man. Appreciate you having me on. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to reconnect with my, with my people on the island. You know, I always got massive, massive love for Hawaii, man. Well, Phil, congratulations on winning uh, your third title personally, and all of those have come with three different franchises. You're a guy who's been to the NBA Finals an incredible six straight times in a row, which just boggles my mind, blows my mind. Have you had adequate time to think on just how remarkable that is? Yeah, Brian, I think I'm. If I if I could put an emoji on my head, my mind would probably be that exploding head emoji. I would just walk around like that. Um, you know, man, I think this journey has been – it's been one that I've had a lot of reflection on. Even going back to my days in Hawaii and just just thinking about my junior college days, my high school days, and and all the things leading up to uh, where I am at this point in my career, it's been an incredible, incredible ride, and um, it's not over yet. You know, I feel like I'm still 
I feel like I'm in a still infant stage, which sounds crazy uh, in my coaching career. But yeah, this this journey has been it's been nothing short of spectacular, you know, in my own my own eyes and and just being a part of it, uh, uh, living it. You know, I, I just try to stay in the moment and trying to trying to remain as uh, as focused as possible and just having some some sense of humility and gratitude, man, for for being able to experience this. Well, I, I am experiencing some gratitude because I, I know how in demand you are right now. You, I mean, you've been making the rounds, whether it's on point with Artie Wilson inside the green room with a guy you just won a title with, uh, L.A. shooting guard Danny Green. And, and on that podcast, his podcast, you actually said you fielded a call from Drake right after you won the title, like on FaceTime on your phone or something. Uh, what is it like to have that degree of, of recognition at this point in your life? Oh, man, that's, that's humbling. It's um, it's really just uh, it's one of those things. Like I said, man, it's it's the it's the it's the brain exploding emoji of just just uh, being able to to sit back and 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 understand that the journey has taken you to this point and and you've you know made made friends and peers of of, of a lot of different successful people. Um, but I think what I've learned is uh, success. Uh, at, on different levels and success in different fields, man. I think people are identify and and you know, winning is is a is a trait that a lot of people want to be identified with, in in different fields. And so, it's no no doing on my own. You know, I, I, obviously I was with in Toronto, so you know we able able to create a relationship with Drake. I mean, he sits right by our bench, and so winning a championship there was a uh, you know that was a huge thing for him. You know, so being from that city, but you know, I just think that um, you know, the NBA is is by far the largest basketball operation in the world, man, and, and it's the most popular. So, you know, being a part of that organization has definitely helped helped my popularity <laughs> in a lot of different ways as well. Well, as we said, you've won titles now with three different organizations, and each one of those had its own special storyline, of course. Um, but each one of those teams, those fan bases you brought helped bring success to a group of people that hadn't experienced it for a while, whether it was the Cavs, of course, for decades, the Raptors had never won a title. And now the Lakers went through their own kind of dark period, you know, of, of lack of success a long time for that franchise. So could you appreciate a lot, that along the way for each one of those cases? Oh man, absolutely. It's, it's, that's being a part of a team, right? I think that's, that's what anybody, any coach, any player, Anybody in the NBA, you you want to be part of a winning team. You want to be part of an organization that has a chance to compete for a championship. I think that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate goal for everyone. So, for me personally, that's all I ever asked for. That's all you can ever ask for. You know, I think people think that um, these things are guaranteed. Look, man, this this run that I've been on, Brian, is there's been a lot of coaches in the NBA that have coached for many years. Great, great coaches that have never had a chance to to be in the finals. And so I don't take this for granted. Um, you just, you ask for the opportunity to be part of a team and organization that can compete. And everybody has a role from the coaches to the players, to the strength conditioning staff, to the medical staff, to the front office ownership. Everybody plays a role in teams having the ability to win a championship. And, and my role is just to be the best assistant coach you know, that I can be for my head coach in the organization. And I, I think I want to correct myself <clears throat> that, excuse me, that title you won with the Cavs, I believe that was 
the first for that franchise as well, right? So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, well, Phil, the, the last 12 months for you and the entire Lakers organization have been something something else. You know, at last preseason, you guys took a trip to China, which came with its own political intrigue. Um, you know, pretty relatively early in the season, of course, there was a very tragic death of Kobe Bryant, a guy that you personally worked with in your in your first NBA job, right? Your first go around with the Lakers. Um, of course, the pandemic stops everything for several months. No one knows for sure if the season's coming back. You get it revived. You get it going in the Orlando bubble, and you're there for three months of your life, capped with that you know six game championship over the Miami Heat. So, Phil, how, how do you sum up the last twelve months of your life? Man, that's been a I think it, obviously in the history of the NBA has been been the most in, interesting season ever, um, and I think just for the world too, Brian. Not just for basketball, but just just for the world in all sense of entertainment, any sport, the world came to a stop. Right, the, the pandemic really just shut the whole world down for an extended period of time, and so just un, you know not normal, just different circumstances, and I think. Um, you touched on all these things. China trip was crazy. Uh, you know, the, the relations there, uh, just that whole trip was a little little different. You know, the whole thing with Kobe uh, passing and his family and, and all of those those people on the on the helicopter. You know, the Lakers were directly hit with that, obviously because of our, our you know the the name and, and Kobe's legacy there. That was a, that was a huge thing for the team and the organization to deal with on a nightly basis. But you know, I just think that everybody from Jeannie on down to everybody in the locker room had the mindset of, you know, it's important for us to really try to carry his legacy and, and, and remember what kind of guy he was and, and to move forward and to move forward with the mindset of trying to do the best we can to represent him um, through the city of LA. And I think that um, the bubble was just a different, a different experience in itself. Um, challenging, but I think our, our team, man, went there with one, one thing on their minds. And, again, that started from the top, you know, from, from Frank down to LeBron and, and, and the rest of the players was to come out of their champions. That was, that was the mindset when we went there. And, again, there was no guarantees with that. But, you know, obviously those guys, they did what they had to do to, uh, to hoist that trophy at the end of that three-and-a-half-month stay inside that luxurious resort in Orlando. <laughs> Uh, and it was well-earned. And um, you, I feel on your social media, you posted not long after you guys won, you, you paid tribute to to your late parents around, as well as uh, your brother, Kevin Handy, right? Who uh, very tragically, my condolences, passed during your time in the bubble. Um, you know, how difficult was that for you to be there, have that happen? Well, I guess while you're kind of, you know, trapped. Yeah, man, that was a, that was a different, ex difficult experience for me. Brian, on many, many different levels. Um, you know, not being able to to physically be there for my brother and my family, it was pretty tough. And I think that the part that made it tougher for me was having a chance to talk to him before he passed and, and him telling me that he wanted me to stay there and complete what I was doing. And really – after that, for me, man, it just it just made it feel like, well, why am I here? Me personally, you know, let alone the rest of the team. But if I'm going to stay here and not be around my family, then I definitely want to make it count. You know, and that just just put me in a frame of mind of, well, I'm, I want to do everything I can to help 
help us be successful. And it didn't matter what it was, being in the gym late at night, um, wh whatever was required to, uh, to help us get over that, that, that hump. And it was, uh, it was a challenging thing for me. I mean, the bubble in itself was challenging already because you're away from your family. But, um, man, I'm, I'm at peace. My family's, my family's doing well. Uh, my brother's in a, in a better place. And so I, I just um, – I was thankful for the opportunity to be able to talk with him before he passed and spend some time with him. And, um, hey, man, we, we came out with the trophy. So it was, it was, it was what I stayed for. And I think it was it was a successful trip. Yeah, well said. Um, well, Phil, on, on a lighter note, I got a chance to uh, talk to AC Carter last week on the podcast, and uh, you know, of course, he was coaching across the across the way from you on the other opposite sideline with the Miami Heat in kind of you know similar uh, role on the team as you have as player development coach. So um, he said that you guys didn't really talk. He he didn't want to talk during the finals but that you guys caught up a little bit after the fact. And he actually mentioned there's maybe something laying the groundwork for at some point coming out to the islands and, and meeting up out here. Is that, is that something you actually see happening? Absolutely, man. I mean, AC would, man, what's crazy is I, I would go in the gym at nighttime, you know, periodically. Um, and every time I went in there, I saw AC in there working with players. I mean, he was always in the gym and just, just seeing him in the gym of all people was always it always brought a smile to my face, man, because because of where we where we come from, what we represent. And, uh, we, you know, we were running each other, running to each other in the hallway. And one day I just said, man, we got to get back out to the island. We got we got to go back out to the island together and do something. You know, I don't care how long, how short. And uh, he was like, yeah, man, that would be that would be something great. So that's that's something I want to do. You know, I want to try to get together with him and. And, and not just him, but, you know, try to bring back, you know, as many different guys as we can, man. You know, Carl English, you know, Trevor Ruffin, uh, you know, Alika Smith. I'm, I'm, I keep in touch with a lot of these guys, man. So being able to get back out to the island and do something for kids and, and put on a camp or clinic of some kind is definitely something I would love to do. Yeah, Alika said he actually keeps in semi-regular touch with you as well. And, um, we do. Well, on the touch, on the subject of uh, the offseason, Phil, you're, you're staring at a pretty abridged offseason here coming up because, I mean, it's just been a couple of weeks since you guys finished in the bubble. The latest NBA reporting out there has potentially the uh, training camp starting December 1st and the actual season beginning December 22nd. Uh, <laughs> after all you went through, are you ready to begin camp in basically a month? Hey, man, you know what? I might not be ready this moment. But if, if that's the starting date, I'll be ready. When it's time to start, I'll be ready to go. And, you know, it's just a mental adjust. That's all it is. I mean, look, I think I've had shortened off seasons for the last six years. Uh, maybe not this short, but if the NBA is going to start back up that soon, I know personally I'll be ready to go. You know, I'll, uh, I'll take as long of a mental and physical break that I can. And if that's when we start, man, I mean, I mean, I'll lace my shoes back up and 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 get ready to uh, take all instruction that Coach Vogel has for me. Well, speaking of taking mental breaks, what did you do? I'm curious during the bubble. I mean, you said that's three and a half months of your life, like between those games, you know, between your film sessions, your, your player development workouts. How did you personally stay sane in inside that situation? B, I'm gonna tell you, man. The NBA did a fantastic job. They did a phenomenal job with that bubble. 
I mean, in terms of the prep, they had everything covered. I mean, from food to entertainment to restaurants to, uh, you know, just being at a, at a huge resort where you have plenty of, plenty of space to move around. You could ride bikes, you know, you could play volleyball, you could go swimming. They had fishing, they had bowling. Uh, there, was, there was a surplus of things that you can do. So, you know, when I went into the bubble, I went in with the mindset of, one, you know, I'm here for, you know, our, our team is here for a reason. So I'm going to make that my first priority. Two, you know, I want to work on my own mental and physical. So I, I did a lot of working out on my own. Uh, every day I got with a strength coach and, you know, I lost, lost a lot of weight while I was in the bubble. So I just, I really tried to improve my own mental and physical. While I was there, I did a lot of reading and, you know, 95 to, you know, 90 to 95% of my time was spent on, on basketball. What do we need to do? You know, game prep, practice prep, watching film, you know, but it was, um, it was a great experience for me individually to uh, to go through it. And, and, and like I said, I, I played in Europe for many years. Mm-hmm. So being away from my family, being in a different country, not having the things you're used to, I, that was that was like going back to Europe for me. Got it. Well, Phil, at one particular moment in time, I'm curious about it was early on in the playoffs. Um, there was the, of course, very uh, reported on boycott of, you know, Milwaukee Bucks started it off after the, you know, the shooting of Jacob Blake and, up there in Wisconsin and, and then, you know, all, all the other teams kind of had their back and uh, fell in line and, and, and play was stopped for a few days there. And I think uh, at least the reporting, the reporting I read had, there was a vote taken among the different teams and it was reported that I guess the Lakers and the Clippers actually said, Hey, if there's nothing the rest of the way, we're fine with that. Or at least that's how the, the vote supposedly came out. Yeah. Did, did you think there was actually a chance of, of it just halting completely? No, I think there was a legit chance. Um, you know, I don't know how accurate it was that report coming out that the Lakers and the Clippers were the teams that said, you know, mm-hmm. we good. I think the 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 NBA players, man, they just they stood by one another to say, hey, look, let's let's talk about these issues. Let's talk about how we can bring more awareness to these issues and how we can fight what's going on in our, in our country. And so it was it was a situation where it's very real that the NBA could have could have not returned to play. Um, but I think the players and the union, their union, they did a great job of getting together and putting their heads together to say, how can we, how can we continue to use the platform that we have right now to to still speak about all the social injustice that we're that we're so upset about? And I think the players and the, uh, the NBA did a great job of coming together to to figure out ways to again continue to use the platform to where they can use their voices to uh, to reach as many different people as they can to again talk about the things that are going on in the country that are just not right. Gotcha. Uh, another uh, social media video you put out after the fact, Phil, uh, you said, quote, uh, put an asterisk by my name. People don't think about it like that. I'll take it versus somebody else having it, end quote. All right. I would say that if there is an asterisk, it should be for counting more so than a regular title because of everything that you and all the other teams went through just to have to compete for that. So do you, my question for you is, do you get the sense that some people still are trying to diminish what you guys accomplish? Hey man, I really don't care if they try to diminish it. You know, that was, that was the whole point of, of saying that, you know, people try to make it, well, you know, it doesn't really count. You know, that's not a real championship. Shit. My ass, we had to go into that bubble in, in a different environment. You know, those, those players, man, they had to play 
without their fans, without their families. You know, and that's a big part of playoff basketball, being able to play in, in crazy arenas and, you know, the fans going on the road, trying to win tough games on the road, playing in front of your home fans, you know, playing in front of your family, your loved ones, um, you know, normal and daily routines that these guys have on game day and, and leading up to game day. All the things that play, these players are used to were all taken away. And so that is a tough environment to be in, right? tough environment to be in when you cannot leave a particular place to just even go have dinner, right? Or just go visit a family. And you talk about all the normal things that we were used to, small things, whatever, go have, you know, take a, take a, some guys have routines. They might like to take a bike ride on game, whatever it is, those things were, were taken away. And so going inside that bubble and competing for a championship, it was just you, your coaches, and your teammates. That's it. That was all the support that you had inside that bubble. And, um, you know, people can try to discredit it all they want, but at the end of the day, somebody had to win. Somebody had to come out of that bubble a champion. And, and I, I will say that to the day I don't breathe anymore. I'm glad it was us. All right, Phil. Well, I, I'm going to take you a little bit back in time now. Uh, we're going to, we're going to touch upon your university of Hawaii days, of course, but, but first, you know, I think it was after your uh, playing days, your pro career as a basketball player, you know, you mentioned you went to Europe for a while. I think you played in like the Continental Basketball Association stateside for a while as well. Uh, your future of your career was ahead of you and, and you launched into your, your player development business, right? First kind of on your own is my understanding. And can you please tell me the origin story of, of first 94 feet of game, which is like now your your handle. And then lately your, your kind of slogan or your brand is, then be your own goat as part of as part of that and and I see the the hashtag anywhere anytime with all the kids like doing drills from all across the world so please can you tell me like the genesis of of really this this player development journey you've been on man Brian when I retired in 2003 that was the last year I played you know around 2000 I was in Australia I started training kids um, just just on my own you know, I had a couple, couple fans that their kids were really, you know, they wanted to get better. And so I, I mean, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll get in the gym with the kids and work with them, help them get better. And I started working with a couple of kids, B, and I fell in love with it. Like just the teaching and, and really seeing how the kids accepted the teaching and, and watching them get better, you know, in a short amount of time, I fell in love with seeing their face seeing how, you know, just, just their minds clicking in and, and seeing how their confidence grew as they went through drills. And I remember um, when I retired in 03, I knew I didn't want to work. I didn't want to have a nine to five. I didn't want to work for anybody. So my wife and I, we, we were sitting on our living room floor and um, the birth of 94 feet of game was just something that we just toyed around with. We were, you know, she was talking about, well, you know, we, we got to come up with a name that just encompasses the whole court and, you know, what about this and what, and we, 94 feet of game, we just, and it just kind of spit out and it just stuck. And then once that happened, man, I started thinking about what does that mean to me? You know, being able to be 94 feet of game, you know, be a complete player. There shouldn't be anything that you shouldn't be able to do once you step inside the lines of the court. And it just took off. Be I, I started training kids. I started training NBA players. I started training high school players, college players. And that was a massive 13 year journey for me um, where it just, it morphed 
into a legit business and just, you know, my name just kind of grew. Uh, my reputation grew in terms of development. And uh, that kind of led me, you know, obviously to my first opportunity with the Lakers in 2011. But I think that um, once I got, you know, into the NBA, I was around all these great players, uh, you know, the Kobe's, the LeBron's, the Kyrie's, the Kawhi's and so on, Steve Nash's and so on and so forth. And, you know, you, you always hear these GOAT conversations. You know, people talk about well, who's the greatest and this guy's the greatest. And I just, it was overwhelming. I just got so overwhelmed by that conversation where I was always kind of felt like so many people were saying, hey, I want to be like this guy. I want to be this guy. And I think a lot of people took away from themselves and saying, how can I reach my own greatness? You know, how can I attain my own level of greatness? And whatever I'm doing, I don't care what field you're in. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what your job title is. How can I wake up every day and strive to be the greatest version of myself every freaking day? And that's what really inspired me with that. And it started out as a hashtag. It started out as a hashtag of, hey, man, be your own goat. Like, like don't settle for mediocrity. You, you have it, all of us, we have it in us in some kind of way to be great. And that's where it came from. And it just, it just kind of morphed. <laughs> that's another thing that morphed into a brand and, and, and the whole, you know, anywhere, any, anytime, anywhere, anytime thing came from my app, you know, the 94 feet of game app. I put that together to, to have a place for people to grow and learn basketball at a high level. You know, they helped the basketball committee. And I, I started having all these kids from China, Korea, Africa, Indonesia, from all different countries of the world. I mean, kids were training outdoors with no shoes on in the rain, in the mud. And I was just like, this is crazy. And so it just really another, another form of anywhere, anytime. It doesn't, there's no excuses. We can train. There's, there's an opportunity for you to work and get better. So that's how those, those, those things have kind of come to life, man. Well, you mentioned working with guys from Kobe, Pal Gasol, Steve Nash, obviously LeBron, Kyrie, Kawhi, Anthony Davis. I mean, a number of future Hall of Famers just right there. I'm, I know I'm forgetting a few guys too. Uh, <laughs> How do you get players of that caliber to take pointers or direction, you know, in your, in your workout sessions with them, those kind of one-on-ones that, that we see on TV every so often? Well, I think it's just all about earning their trust, right? It's really about earning their trust through your work. Through the work, you build real relationships with these guys by showing them, one, that uh, as a coach, I understand the game. I understand um, them as players. And then it's about collaborating with them. It's about really asking them questions about where they want to improve their game and how can I help as a coach? You know, how can you, how can you help a guy like Kobe get better? And that's a, it's, it's a, a, not a, it's not a, not a, not a, a small thing to understand, hey, Kobe, what can I do to help you get better? You know, and those dudes are always trying to get better. And I think the relationships are built by the work that you do and earning their trust. And when they, when they see that uh, you have nothing but the, the desire for them to become better players, they completely trust you. You know, your relationships are built through your work. And, man, it's just, it's just one of those things where you're you not afraid to coach these guys in areas where they can improve and also not afraid to learn from them. Right? Learning, from, learning from players, man, is a big thing that we as coaches have to do because it's not always just about us teaching them. They teach us a lot of stuff as well. And it's very important for us to pay attention and learn from them as much as 
as much as they're learning from us. You know, and obviously, Phil, you do a lot of work with journeymen. Um, it's not all about the star players. Do you have a personal favorite kind of point A to point B journeyman story of a guy you've worked with? Maybe somebody who's, who's been, you know, playing for a bunch of franchises, just maybe on the cusp of the league, but has really benefited, you feel like, from where you started to where they are now? No, man. I've, listen, man, I've, I've had an opportunity, Ryan, to be around some great vets, like some great vets. And again, it wasn't just me teaching them. I've learned, you know, the Richard Jeffersons, the Channing Fries, the, the man, James Jones, the Sean Marions, um, you know, Jared Dudley's, you know, even, you know, Dwight Howard this past season. Uh, it was, there's a long list. You know, there is a long, long list of, of guys that have been around in the NBA. Um, and I can't sit here and tell you that's, there's one that I've, I've seen. But what I can tell you that, like, those guys that I've named, the common denominator is those guys are pros. They are, they are like the ultimate pros, like Kendrick Perkins, for example. You know, he came to Cleveland you know, at the tail end of his career. And he was brought there not so much to play, you know, but him and Dante Jones were brought in to, to be guys that were blue guys, to help our locker room, to help our team. Man, and that's exactly what they did. They showed up to work every day. And I mean, and they worked as if they were playing, you know. And so you, as a young player in the league, you look at that and it, you have to look at that and say, man, okay, here's a guy that he knows he might, you know, he's not going to play, but he's in here busting his ass every day like he's going to play. I mean, it, that's what that's what your job is for, right? And so, I mean, there's, there's a long list of guys I've had a chance to coach with that have really taught me a lot about being a pro, you know, as a coach that, um, they're invaluable, man. They're every, every NBA team needs guys like that. Well, going back to your point, A, Phil Handy, uh, you, you grew up in Oakland, right? In, in or around the greater area there. Uh, yes, you, you got to Skyline Community College, and then you, you ventured out this way out of the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, <laughs> so what's, what was kind of, in your words, your origin story of you coming out, coming out here to UH? And Jamie Dixon was a coach – he coached me at a camp. <laughs> Jamie, good old Jamie Dixon, you know, became a hell of a head coach in college. But at the time, Jamie was like, he was like a video, he was like a video coordinator in Hawaii. And so he was, he was working at one of the pump camps. Um, you know, these when the pumps had their camps down in SoCal. And I went to one of the camps and Jamie was my coach at one of the camps. And he went back to Hawaii. You know, he told Bob Nash, he told Jackson Wheeler, uh, and the next thing I know, Jackson Wheeler and Bob Nash are showing up at my gym pretty much once a week. You know, they were they were consistent, and you know they 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 just recruited the hell out of me. And I remember I um I uh, I had a friend of mine, a good a good cop. I'm gonna tell this story, man. I haven't really never told this story in public. All right, uh, this is the first time. A friend of mine, college buddy of mine, man. He didn't he didn't really have a scholarship, and we were. You know, we were playing, we were good friends, played, played against each other in junior college. And, you know, Riley Wallace was, was pretty heavy on the recruiting. And Hawaii wasn't even really my first choice. You know, I was, I was at a point where I was going to go to Cal Berkeley. I wanted to play next to Jason Kidd and Lamar Murray. Uh, me and Lamar Murray grew up together, playing in the same neighborhood. Jason was a couple of years, but I was, I was prepared to go to Cal Berkeley. Um, so 
Riley came in and said, hey, look, we, we really want to sign you and blah, blah, blah. And my, my boy didn't have a scholarship, so I kind of threw it out there. I said, man, Riley, if you, if you guys assign my boy, I'm coming to Hawaii. And I threw it out there as like bait. I really was throwing it out there to, to get Hawaii kind of off my, off my trail. <laughs> oh, really, B, I was trying to get him off my trail. Man, they, <laughs> they asked for some film. And my, my, my guy was good. He was a good player. I mean, he was one of the best players in California. They saw his film. They signed him first. They went and signed him first. And Brian, when I tell you, I tried to get out of that scholarship. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going. I'm, my father, who's no longer alive, C.L. Handy Sr., the man that he was, when he got wind of what happened, Riley Wallace had flown to the Bay. He was at my house with my dad. I was trying not to come home. My father found out where I was and told me to bring my ass home. And when I got in my living room, Wiley Wallace was sitting in my living room. And my dad said, man, you gave this man your word. You are signing this scholarship. You are going to the University of Hawaii. And that's how that, that's how that ended up being that I went to Hawaii. Um, and it's probably one of the biggest lessons I ever learned by my father uh, making me go, making me keep my word and going to Hawaii, man, the rest, the rest is history. You know, I've, I've never really shared that story with that's anybody. A, that's incredible. It's, um, but that's how that whole thing came to life, man. My, my dad was, 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 uh, was very old school and he made me be a man of my word. Was, uh, out of curiosity, Phil, was, was your childhood friend's name Wendell Owens? Was that the guy? <laughs> my guy, man. That's my guy. <laughs> So I, I read an article, I was doing some deep diving, and when you guys won that 1994 WAC championship, uh, the article in the, in the old Honolulu Advertiser had one of the first descriptions was you ch hugging your childhood Fred Wendell Owens, yes, sir. Uh, was, was yes, right sir. there near the top of the, the article by Stephen Sy. So that, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, one quick thing I was told to ask you about from Jackson Wheeler, he, he said to ask you about the sleeveless t-shirt fiasco. <laughs> fiasco man that was one of the greatest things in hawaii man my brother had a t-shirt company um and he, it was called the one sleeve t and it was really it was a concept you know people back then right but i don't even remember people used to wear big t-shirts under their uniforms and you know you see a lot of guys once you start sweating your t-shirts would start drooping and sagging so guys would they would just you know like on their shooting arm they would lift it up because it'd be in the way and my brother designed this shirt called the one sleeve T, which had a T, but whatever shooting hand you were, it was cut off. And this was a full design. They were great T-shirts. And we won. I mean, we, you know, my brother was like, hey, I'm going to send shirts. So we were wearing them things. Me, Trevor, Tony Maroney, Walter Bonner. We were Clea, Alika. Man, we, we were all wearing these things. Um, even Jaron O'Connor, man. <laughs> we, were, we were rocking the one sleeve T. And we, we, we won. I think we won the whack. And then my brother made these T-shirts that had everybody's signature on it, all the players' signatures. And, and he wasn't really – he wasn't selling them, but he just made shirts with our signatures on the back. And we were just giving them out. Man, the NCAA went crazy. <laughs> you know, they were like, it's a violation. I can't remember. I don't remember if I, if I got in trouble or the school got in trouble, but it, was, it became a pretty big thing, man. And Jackson, Jackson and Riley were having a fit. They were having a fit. But I guess it all worked out for you. It did, man. It worked out, man. The shirts, man, they tell Jackson, man, the fiasco, man, those, 
Those things were legendary in Hawaii, man. Um, I came across a quote from you, Phil, that I wanted to read back to you. Uh, the, the year you guys ended up winning the WAC tournament in 93-94, you took home all WAC newcomer honors, and here's what you told the advertiser. You said, quote, to tell you the truth, I don't think I played good enough this year. I was really surprised. I'm quite happy with the honor, but as far as personal satisfaction, I don't think I played anywhere near my potential. That was you. So I could see some some roots of the maybe the, the player development working on your own game kind of ethos back then, just from that quote right there. 100%, man. I felt like, I felt like my career in Hawaii was mediocre. It wasn't great. Um, you know, by maybe other people's standards, hey, you know, Phil was a great player here. It was very mediocre for me. Um, I, I know I had a lot more to offer. I, I always felt like I was a better player than I showed when I was in Hawaii. But one thing I never tried to do, one thing I didn't do, and one thing I always did was I always made sure I played hard every game, every night. That was one thing that I never faltered on. I always played hard and left it on the court. But as far as my, my individual skills, um, man, I had a lot more in the tank. And I just felt like my career there was, was, was mediocre at best. Uh, you were a, a double digit for your career. I think the two full years you played, you, you know, you averaged right around 10 a game, I think 4.7 rebounds, around three assists a game, something in that neighborhood. But um, you, that season you guys won it all in the tournament, it started abysmally, like went up to Alaska, lost all three in the great Alaska <laughs> shootout by average of like 40 a game. Oh, man, that's not losing, B. That's getting your ass whooped. I'm there sorry. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, you said it. But yeah. uh, – <laughs> And even on senior night, Phil, your I guess that would have been your senior night before heading up to Salt Lake City for the WAC tournament. You guys lose to San Diego State, who was not a very good team that year, by like 10 points. Um, but then you guys string together wins against Colorado State, New Mexico, BYU on successive days. And BYU game was basically a home game for them in Salt yeah. Lake City at the Delta Center. How the heck did you guys do that after that abysmal start to the year you had? Um, Trevor Ruffin. I'm going to tell you right now, man, that man played out of his brain. He was insane. Now look, we, we, had a, we had a good team. You know, we all pulled together. But Trevor Ruffin led that. We all got on his back, man. And, and really to this day, if you go back and look at those games that he played, man, he was destroying cats. And it was just – it was a phenomenal run for him individually, those games, and it was a phenomenal run for our team. I think everybody stepped up. Every night we had somebody different step up. You know, guys played well. Tony Maroney had a great, great, great conference tournament. You know, I, I felt like I had a pretty decent one. Jaron, Kalia, you know, we, we all just kind of collectively, you know, Riley Wallace behind Riley, man, we, we just, we had a great, I don't remember if it was four games or three games, we had a great stretch of games where we just, we put it together. And I think one of the things that helped us was early in the year, like you said, be how it started, we were on the road. We started off the season on the road for six straight games. And I think going back, that really helped us at the end of the year because we were in Utah for you – know, we were in Utah for like six or seven days, you know, for the tournament. And that BYU – we BYU was – they were killing us. I think the score was like – they started off the game, the score was like 25 to 4 or something crazy like that. And we cut the lead to, to 8. By halftime, in the second half, <laughs> Trevor Ruffin just took over. 
it was over. It was just, it was an onslaught, man. And that was, I think that's one of the most historical things that I've ever been a part of as a player. Just that run that we had, it was, uh, that was incredible, man. You guys were down 14 points, three minutes into the second half. Then Trevor Ruffin goes on to hit five threes in that half. 73 to 66 was the final. You scored 17 in that game. When you, it's still the arena for the Jazz. It's got a different name now, right? The Energy Solutions right. Arena or whatnot. Uh, right. When you pass through that building, do you still think about that? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. All the, all the time. Anytime we go play there, man, I look up in the stands and I'm just like, yep, yep. It, it always, you know, even, even years later, man, I remember, I just remember our celebration. Um, you know, and we, and we didn't really go far. We went, I think we went to Ogden. We stayed in Utah. We, I mean, we were in Utah for a total of like two weeks during that whole period. So, yeah, man, I remember that vividly. At that arena, it always uh, it's always a good feeling when I go back in that arena. Where does Trevor Ruffin stack among the best shooters you've ever played with or, or seen? And Tony Maroney is like a rebounder shot blocker. Man, Trevor Ruffin stacks up as one of the best players I've ever played with. You know, just in terms like he was my roommate. <laughs> we were roommates. And like Trev, he'd be, he was a maniac. He would sit in his room and for hours he would watch Tim Hardaway film. That's all he would watch. Tim, I mean, hours and hours and hours. And like to see that translate to how he played, man, he was just fearless. Like he was a pit bull for real. Like he was one of those dudes, man. He was, he was trying to bite your head off uh, as a player. And I just remember like his, his competitive, even with us, like we, we first got to Hawaii as play. He didn't know us, man. He was going at us like we were, we were the enemy. And I just remember his, his ferocity. He's one of the one of the best scorers I've ever played with, man. You know, not just a shooter. I mean, he was that dude who could flat out score. And uh, Tony Maroney, man, he was he was so talented. You know, Tony was a seven footer that had touch, right? You know, even back then, seven footers were just on. I mean, he was he was a seven footer that had a lot of touch, around the rim, on the perimeter, soft hands, had good feet. And it's a shame that um, you know his career didn't allow him the the uh, the ability to play in the NBA because I think I, I really think he would have been a great player in the NBA. Well, Phil, I know you got to go. I'll just a couple more real quick here. Um, you guys, uh, back back to kind of a little more modern happenings. Um, LeBron in one of your one of your videos in the, the locker room celebration, uh, LeBron said, when me and PH link up, you better watch out during that celebration. You guys have now won two titles together from your Cavs title in 2016 to this one right now. What's it like to have maybe the possible GOAT, you know, the actual GOAT in your corner like that? Uh, man, it's, um, that's, that's an awesome feeling. It's, it's a really a validation of, of, again, just building that, that you, you know, real organic relationship through the work that you do on the floor. And, and having, having the trust of Braun um, in, in helping him continue to be a great player, man, that's, uh, that is the ultimate, you know, be for me. I think that's one of the things I set out to do as a trainer years ago was to be one of the best trainers I could and could be in the industry. And, you know, I think that's, uh, that's the ultimate man to have, have, have words like that from a guy like Brian, but, but what people don't realize, man, Brian is, Brian's one of the most easygoing dudes on the earth. And he's one of those guys, man, that just loves to work on his game. So he's a gym rat. And so, you know, again, our relationship is another one of those relationships that was just built through the work that we've done. And, 
and to be able to win win two championships with him, man, it's you know, I've been blessed to be part of part of the teams that he's been on. So it's uh, you know maybe that's not done yet. Hopefully we might we might have a couple more coming under the belt. Who knows? My final question for you, Phil Handy, is what's next for you down the line? I mean, you've been discussed discussed lately as a head coaching candidate by some people around the league. Um, is that something you you want or, or see for yourself someday? Yeah, B, I think it's an organic thing for me. It's just like anything else. It's not something that I'm seeking or that I'm actively chasing. Um, my goal every day is to just be the best assistant coach that I can be right now. And that means to continue to learn, continue to grow uh, as a coach and continue to just take in as much knowledge as I can and, and prepare myself. And if that opportunity comes, I'll be ready for it. Um, again, I think my path, my career has been very organic to this point, and I'm going to keep it that way. You know, it's really just all about me waking up and working hard every day to be the best coach that I can be. And so if, um, if there's a team in this league that thinks I'm the man to run their organization on the court, then I'll be prepared for that when it happens. All right. Well, Phil Handy, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations again on all the success. Enjoy what offseason you have left coming up for you. Hey, man, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you.